how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Tiller Russell grew up spending time in courthouses, thanks to his lawyer father, which led him to a career in crime-related journalism. Thanks to a few chance encounters with Errol Morris, director of The Thin Blue Line, Russell decided to quit his job at the newspaper and get into filmmaking. In this interview, we hop back and forth between Russell's most recent projects, the miniseries documentary Night Stalker for Netflix, and the fictional retelling of Silk Road, which stars Nick Robinson, Jennifer Young, and Jason Clark. Russell discusses how he chose to make Night Stalker as a documentary versus Silk Road as a film, what it means to have a nose for stories, how he ended up working on The Deadliest Catch, what it's like to write for Dick Wolf, and how to present a story to an audience with no preconceived judgments. I was always a movie nut as a kid. In fact, my first job was at a, a video store in Dallas, Texas, Banana Video, where I lied about my age and put in my application. And my only goal was that I would be able to get you know, movies for free from the video store. Um, so I, I was always fascinated, but I, you know, I didn't have any connections to Hollywood. It didn't seem any, you know, it didn't necessarily seem like it was a viable path or career. Um, and, um, my dad in, in Dallas was in, uh, the district attorney's office depicted in Errol Morris's film, the thin blue line. And so he would kind of drag me around to courthouses and jails and precincts or whatever. So I grew up around that, uh, milieu and around those kinds of people. Um, and then eventually went on to become, a uh, crime crime reporter in the Bay Area because I was, I guess, kind of fluent in that language and able to to hang out with those types of people and found them fascinating. And then um, it was later actually Errol Morris again with whom I crossed paths in the Bay Area um, was doing a profile of him as he was promoting a film and. Um, 
he took me out to dinner because it was the last interview of the day. And um, uh, he said, at the end of the night, he said to me, you know, you're either going to spend the rest of your life writing about people like me, or you're going to try your hand at this. And those words just kind of rang in my ears. And I literally quit my job at the newspaper the next day. And, um, you know, I've ended up in, ended up in LA eventually. And I've been uh, knocking around making my way ever since. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a big job, you know, a bold jump and that kind of thing to cut that safety net. Did you give yourself like a time limit? Like, how, What were some of those first steps you took? Um, did you have some, some other connections at that point in the business? No, I didn't really. I mean, um, I went to school, uh, you know, went to, went to film school and um, came out of it. And, and basically sort of what happened was I knew that if you had a nose for story um, and that, and the ability to kind of chase it in the world that I figured I could kind of learn the filmmaking uh, along the way. And that's really what it was for me, kind of making documentaries um, where, you know, I was used to, to chasing stories from being a reporter and the filmmaking process was something that I, that I, that I learned kind of stumbling forward and doing it. Um, and then really ever since I have kind of toggled between the two where it's using the experience of real people and telling authentic stories. You know, whether I'm making a documentary uh, and spending time in the edit room, I'm listening to the rhythms of people's speech and their uh, motivations and, and um, I guess, kind of, you know, ticks and tells as a writer. Um, and so they've always kind of cross-pollinated uh, for me, the ability to write and, and and the ability to kind of mine a nonfiction story. What was your first kind of kind of big break in the industry and how did you pitch yourself? I would assume you relied on your journalism skills, but what else were you saying to kind of pitch yourself and get on these first jobs? Well, um, a, a lot of it ended up being sort of like there, there were different um, pivot points, I guess, along the way or, or sort of bridges along the way that I kind of stumbled into. Um, once I uh, had had made a few documentaries, someone had contacted me uh, about going up to Alaska, the Bering Sea, and um, going out on the crab fishing boats in the middle of winter. And I ended up um, being a part of the, being a producer on the, the three-part pilot of what ended up launching the deadliest catch. You know, and at the time that I went up there, I thought, well, who the hell is going to watch this? Like, who cares about crabs in the ocean? You know. Uh, but then on the boat that I happened to be on, there was a young kid that um, went overboard and nearly died and was saved. And as soon as that happened, I had this weird kind of conflicting feeling of. God, like somebody sitting back home at the network, or, you know, or in the office is going to think that this is the most dramatic, incredible footage ever. And yet I feel like I almost watched this kid die in front of me. Um, and yet I knew that that tension, you know, the kind of voyeuristic fascination was kind of why we were there. Um, and so, so that was a pivotal moment for me. And then um, you know, later on, I made a film uh, called The 7-5 about, you know, a crew of corrupt cops in New York. And, um, and that was another 
you know, pivotal moment for me. Um, I was at the time I was, you know, writing for Dick Wolf, you know, TV shows and, um, and I made that film and suddenly, um, it became a look, uh, you know, inside, you know, a deeply embedded personal look of what it's like to be in a crew of corrupt cops told by the people that lived it in a kind of immersive 360 fashion. And once I had done that, I thought, okay, any of the nonfiction films I make in the future need to have that same um, propulsive narrative drive as well as um, 360 view of things without a moral judgment. So that I think was, was kind of defining moving forward. Um, and as I have since then hopscotched between narrative films and, and, and or, you know, narrative work and, and nonfiction, um, it's that same, I'm drawn to these stories of, uh, I guess, complicated people with deep internal um, conflicts and questionable morality. And my feeling is always, um, I don't want to pass a facile moral judgment for the audience. I want to just present the story and let you draw your own conclusions. So maybe skipping ahead a little bit, if we're talking about Silk, Silk Road versus Night Stalker, um, I know that you you wrote Silk Road, but I think you just came on to direct Night Stalker. How do you um, start the research for something like those where one's going to be documentary, one's going to be, you know, historical fiction in a way? Um, Yeah, in each case, it's driven by um, character and kind of what, what, what happens more often than not for me is these stories kind of find me in a funny way. In the case of Silk Road... Um, I remember vividly opening the newspaper the day after Ross Ulbricht was arrested in San Francisco. And um, even just in the top line reporting of the story, thinking like, wow, who in the hell is this guy? How did he end up in this place? Like, there's a movie there, whether it's a documentary or a feature film, you know, who knows, who knows what. And then eventually there was a, you know, a brilliant Rolling Stone article that was, um, written by by David Kushner, uh, that was this kind of thoughtful, in-depth profile and portrait of Ross Ulbricht, and that became the basis for the film. Um, and so, in a weird way, I use the same or a similar kind of methodology, whether it's a documentary or whether it's a you know a narrative film like Silk Road, where you're mining the historical record, um, you know, everything that's ever been published, any firsthand sources, you know, Ross's ex-girlfriend was, was a, um, uh, a consultant and, and source for the film. And, you know, there were these vast troves of archival material, uh, Ross's diaries and his public postings, his Dread Pirate Roberts and, um, and the chat logs. And so I was able to draw, um, research materials from the historical record. In the case of Night Stalker, um, uh, I was, you know, writing for a Dick Wolf TV show at the time and a fellow writer and friend of mine came in and he said, man, I just went to dinner with this, you know, uh, the homicide cop that worked the Night Stalker um, case. You think there's, there's possibly a movie in that or a documentary in that. And I went out to dinner with Gil Carrillo um, and was sitting in this kind of old school, you know, LA dive bar diner with the, 
you know, red vinyl uh, uh, chair behind him, looking, you know, listening to him unfurl the tale of that, uh, you know, long, hot, harrowing summer. And I instantaneously, the sort of wheels in my mind began turning of like, oh, this, this is like, this is a, this is a, this is a documentary series. I got to do this story. And now what often happens is, it will start in one medium and move to the other. Um, you know, I would be fascinated to make the documentary series of Silk Road. You know, I am adapting Night Stalker as a, as a, um, you know, as a narrative series. And, and my next movie is an adaptation of my film Operation Odessa. So, um, so I guess the, 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 um, the boundaries between them are kind of collapsing some. I know that's kind of happened with like that. That's kind of what led to the wire as well. I know the creator kind of wrote journalism pieces about that. And eventually it became the story. Tell me a little more about night stalker. Like when you're doing the research for this, how do you decide it's three episodes? I'm sorry. I'm going back and forth a little bit. That's fine. I'm not some it's uh, three episodes as opposed to like eight or 10. Is this mainly about a business deal um, or, or, or filtering the material? How do you decide some of these things? Well, it's sort of the material. My, my experience is I go into it pretty open-minded and, um, and the material kind of tells you what it wants to be. Um, in the case of Night Stalker, my experience was as soon as we made the decision um, that it was a portrait of a city in a bygone era, then I knew that it had to be this big kind of L.A. noir tapestry of L.A., that it wasn't something that could just be done in, you know, a, a sort of you know, 90 minute feature film. In the case of Silk Road, when, when it kind of locked in for me what it wanted to be was when it became the story of these two opposing characters, you know, the story of Ross Ulbricht and you know, Rick Bowden, who's a, who's a composited character, but again, kind of based on, you know, the historical record. And once I had envisioned that as a two-hander of these two um, contrasting arcs, I guess, um, and these two, these two men, uh, you know, on their respective missions, um, then suddenly I knew, okay, that wants to be a feature film. And so it's kind of, wading into the material with an open mind and, and kind of open heart and then letting it tell you what it wants to be. And this may be a question for your, for the producer role. Um, what's the logistic first steps for Silk Road? Did you have to acquire rights to this article? I know IP is a big thing. Like what are some of those steps you took to get the ball rolling? Yeah. In this case, um, one of the producers had, uh, so journalists had written the article on Ross Ulbricht, um, for Rolling Stone. And that article, uh, was optioned by producers with the intention of making it into a film. And so, um, then it's a question of like sitting down and, you know, them looking for filmmakers, writers who are right for the material. And, and I guess they were fans of my film, the seven five and thought that it would be an interesting kind of pairing of uh, subject matter and material. And it's, it so happened um, ironically enough that I was you know completely obsessed with the story already. And, and so when I walked into the initial meeting, they're like, what do you know about this? And I'm like, I know everything, <laughs> you know, because I, because I had been um, just, just uh, riveted by it from, from the moment that the story first broke. And I think that my connection to the material 
you know, sort of led from there. And, and then it's, you know, it's a long and arduous path from that initial IP um, to actually having a film that's, you know, cast and, and shot and uh, acquired and released into the world. Um, and there were many different iterations of it along the way that, that, that sort of could have been. Um, and, but I'm glad that, I'm frankly glad that it took the time that it did. And I ended up with the, with the cast that I did, because I think it's a pretty remarkable set of, of performers that are in it. And I was grateful to have the chance to collaborate with them. With kind of, you know, the many hats that you wear, do you find it difficult to transition between researcher, producer, writer, director, nonfiction, fiction? Do you have any areas where you feel blocked or how you kind of transition to those different areas? Um, that's a great question. In it happens in phases. So, when you're in research mode, you're just consume, you know, sort of madly consuming story and looking at the kind of different contrasting and conflicting accounts. And then at a certain point, kind of after you've done a ton of research, it's like, okay, now I'm going to put it all aside. And I'm, now I'm in writer mode. Uh, and I'm, don't worry about whether this is expensive or complicated or whether how I'm going to shoot this. I'm just sort of finding it as a writer. And then at a certain point, you know, after numerous drafts of the script and as, as the script gets pretty close, then it's I sort of put down that role and I pick it up looking at, okay, now I'm a director. This has to be shot in a certain period of time. Who are the right actors for it? Because at the end of the day, who you choose I think casting is the most central decision. And in a weird way, I think everything is casting from choice of story, your casting story to choice of writer. You know, if you're working with a writer or it's yourself and then to casting literally the actors, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to have to bring this to life and then choosing your collaborators, whether it's your director of photography or your editor, who particularly in a documentary, but really in anything, ends up being kind of a, you know, co-author and partner along the way to it. Um, and so while it is a bit schizophrenic, the different um, roles and responsibilities in each phase, because there are phases, you're able to kind of shift from one to the other. Um, and, and it keeps it from, it's never boring. It's often hard and exhausting and, you know, crazy making, but it's never boring. What is, is your niche like crime? You would say like, what, what makes a story worth telling that you want to be the producer, but maybe you're not right to be the writer or director. How do you kind of make that decision? Well, uh, you know, part of it is, is uh, I mean, a large part of it is just sort of like passion and fascination, where if, it, if it's something that I can't stop thinking about, because it, ta you know, it takes years to do anything. And so when you decide that you're going to commit to something, it needs to be something that you're going to go, that you're willing to go to the end of the earth for. And so if I don't have that um, really... Um, visceral connection to the material from the front end, then I will usually step step away from it because I know you have to be kind of a madman to, to, to get anything, to get it done and, and bring it into the world. You have to be just relentless and, and, and uh, tireless. And so that's really the driving, the driving thing for me. Um, and then it's finding uh, partners and um, 
collaborators who are, you know, it's kind of, it sounds melodramatic, but it, re- it really is true. You, you want people that, you know, are willing to go into the foxhole with you because, um, because these things are really hard to make. Even in the best of circumstances and the best of days, they're, you know, really, really hard to do. So you've got, you know, Night, Night Stalker and Silk Road are both listed as coming out in 2021. I assume you're working on these at different times, maybe going back and forth. Is there some like creative benefit to having the overlap? Do you like working on a few different things at one time? Excellent question and uh, complicated answer in the sense of um, I love it. It's incredibly um, fascinating and it's nice to be able to put down one project when you sort of hit a place where you're blocked or you're frustrated or, you you know, and you're able to then pour your energies into something else so that your subconscious mind can, um, you know, be sort of cooking on the problems. And yet on the other hand, it's, it's overwhelmed. You know, I was making three projects essentially simultaneously an Amazon series called the last narc night stalker for Netflix and Silk Road for Lionsgate. And so it was this incredible, you know, high voltage charge of, of sort of juggling all of these projects simultaneously. Um, that was incredibly exhilarating and exhausting at the same time. If you ever feel like something's missing, is it, is it generally a lack of research or maybe if you read a screenplay and it's something's not quite right about it, is, is that this, is that the typical problem you might see in something that's more of a, you know, crime centric or about real life? Whenever my instincts tell me that something is not right, or if there's something buzzing in the back of my head, I know it's not finished. Um, it, you know, that is kind of an infallible, uh, if there's a question in the back of your, in the back of your mind, it means it's not done. And it's not necessarily research per se that's missing. It could be, um, you know, where you're writing a particular scene that's happening primarily from one character's perspective and it should shift and be from the other. Or, you know, similarly in, you know, the edit of something, it's like, ooh, what if I lifted, you know, what if I inverted these two scenes and this happens first and, and then that happens? Um, so it's never, the, the solution to the problem is never the same thing twice, but the the buzz, you know, in the back of your head, if something's like, if you wonder if it's not right, then it's not right yet. And you got to keep working. Let's kind of uh, maybe make a hypothetical question here. So let's say you um, were just starting out in the business today. You found something, maybe not as something as popular as a Silk Road article, but maybe a local article that you thought was interesting enough to make a documentary film out of. How would you start? Would you start by making a short? How would you kind of reach out to people? Are there are there any kind of generic basic steps someone could take today to to find a story worth telling um, that's maybe a little I don't know less competition for the particular story? I think it's all I think it's all character and material. At the end of the day, um, you know the 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 kind of tiniest, most unseen, unlauded. Uh, stories can be absolutely riveting. Um, and so for me, it's all about people. And I, I, I guess the first thing I always do is, hey, pick up the phone. Will you, will you sit down with me? Will you tell me your story? Will you um, share what's going on? And from that, because at the end of the day, it's people that we're hooking into, right? And most people want to be listened to and want to have their stories uh, cared for and heard by somebody. And so 
to this day, when I when when something catches my attention, whether it's you know a, a stranger telling a story in a bar or a restaurant, if it's something that's fascinating, I kind of go up and say, "Excuse me, you know, you know, I'd love to I'd love to hear more about that." Um, and then and then the path can kind of reveal itself from there. But it's a chasing story and character, I think. When you were kind of describing your first experience on Deadliest Catch and, and to relate that to today. Well, there's so many streamers and networks and online options, that type of thing. Do you think there there can be a story anywhere? Like, do you think, um, I don't know, I guess, like, is, is unique the main thing today? Or what, what are we looking for now that might be different from, say, 10 years ago? It's the same elements that have always drawn us, like, kind of eternally um, in story where it's, it's, character and its conflict and its specificity um it doesn't have to be big or loud or um overtly commercial you know i saw the film the sound of metal recently and was just so like blown away by just what an astonishingly like beautiful and powerful work of art it was you know it just shook me to my core and that's um such it's just that's a small, unexpected story. Heavy metal drummer, you know, goes deaf and causes him to um, reckon with his demons and lose the love of his life and try to find who he is. Well, there's nothing overtly commercial or no particular, you know, obvious brand, you know, that that's being appealed to there. But it's one of the most beautiful things I've seen in a long time. How did you start to, so I'm looking back at your IMDb kind of in the early days when you, I think you, did you start as a producer and then you kind of moved into writing and directing? Like how did you, you know, build the confidence to move into these other areas? Did you mentor with people? How did you kind of learn the ropes uh, for all these different facets? You know, a decent amount of it is sort of stumbling from one thing to another. And um, I was lucky enough at certain times to have different people, um, take a chance on me. Uh, and I was constantly asking people like, Hey, you know, will you, will you give me a shot? Will you teach me whatever, you know? And then, you know, and a lot of it's trial and error and, you know, trying something and failing and not letting it, uh, define you and, and going on to the next thing. In my experience, the people that are making interesting work and sort of are the ones who continue to show up because everybody gets your, their teeth kicked out all the time in this business. I mean, you know, it takes Martin Scorsese 20 years or 10 years to make The Irishman, you know, which is just astonishing to think about. But it, it's really true. You know, he had to fight that long to make that movie. Um, and so it's, it's the people that um, are relentless and keep showing up that are the ones that get to work. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at writerfieldnotes.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.